All right. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Earthquake Science Seminars, Science Center Seminar Series for June 19th. Uh, as a reminder, please turn off your cameras and mute your microphones. All these functions are available through the menu bar at the top of your team's window. And if you want to enable live captioning, click the three dots button, which is their more button, and choose turn on live captions. And now before we begin today, there are a few announcements. First, next week's seminar is going to be presented by Joanna Dill about the impacts of past earthquakes in San Francisco. And also the next all hands meeting is this Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific. Also for the send off of Steve Hickman, that is on June 24th uh, from 4 to 7 p.m. via Zoom. So mark your calendars for that and more details will be coming. Also, one final reminder, if you go onto any of the campuses for the USGS, please remember to notify your superior and fill out the online form documenting that. And as a final reminder, if you have any questions for today's speakers, speaker, you can either type them into the chat or raise your hand, and I'll be monitoring chat and reading out the questions at the end or calling on you at the end so you can ask the speaker your questions in person. And today our speaker is our very own David Walt, and now I'm going to hand it over to Sarah Menson to introduce him. Hello. Um, to get things started, if everyone wants to unmute for a second, we could give Dave a big round of applause for winning the 2020 Shoemaker Award for Lifetime Achievement in Communications and Exceptional Service. Okay, no, quiet. Um, one thing Dave asked me to do was to be brief, so super briefly, Dave is amazing. He's been here, um, I believe he first came as a postdoc in 1995. He's made a huge impact at the USGS. Basically, if you go to the website and you see a product, Dave probably was the one who had the biggest part in making that thing possible. Everything from ShakeMap to Did You Feel It to PageR to ShakeCast. He's had a huge influence through both seismology and engineering. He's been really involved in EERI and is editor-in-chief of Earthquake Spectra. He's won a slew of awards, including a couple of Superior Service Awards, a Meritorious Service Award, an Exceptional Service Award. And most importantly, he is an excellent board watcher. So <laughs> let's give it to Dave. Thanks, Sarah. I, I really appreciate that, um, that uh, the uh, Shoemaker Award is kind of a, a shocker to me, really floored me. Um, I like the way Dave Applegate phrased it. He said something like it was overdue. He said the achievement part, but not the lifetime part. So uh, thanks, thanks everyone. And uh, I wish I could be with you in, uh, in California, but here we are uh, remote still, but it's a pleasure to be here. Let me start sharing my screen. And I will go into full screen mode, grab a laser pointer. And how's that look, Colin? OK, it looks good. All right, thanks. All right, thank you, Sarah, uh, as always, for the kind words. Um, yeah, so uh, what I'll be covering today is uh, basically where we're going with some of our products, some recent ad advancements, and also next next directions and basically just two parts of this update on some of the earthquake information products including new ones uh, ground failure two pager a few others that we've been working on um, but really what i want to focus on is new directions and that's um, updating existing models with ground truth data and the ground truth can be uh, in different forms one approach would be casualty reports the other would will be satellite imagery um, and this is all aiming towards what i'm calling the next generation pager or n2 pager whatever you want to call it uh, and hopefully we'll have some time for questions and answers um, you know the this whole um, award for lifetime achievement i mean it obviously takes a village to to do the kinds of things that that we do um, you know, I, I always like to think of, you know, good ideas are about 5% of the problem. <laughs> Implementation is the 95%. And for any of these products, um, we've had enormous efforts on a number of people's behalf that, you know, includes the software development, the um, operations, the response, the communications with all the different users, and the continuously, you know, updating of the data sets and the products that go into these. So it really takes a lot of people. And these are the, the USGS folks that are, um, involved most recently 
but uh, Vince and Bruce have been involved since uh, since Shake Map and Did and Digifield started. Keyshore came on when we when we started with um, with Pager. Quowan's been on for a long time with the Shakecast system, and 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 Mike Hearn and Kristen joined with Pager. Now we've got Kate and Eric on on ground failure and, and ground motions and other things. But we also have uh, new faces. Dara's working on finite faults and Rob and working on engineering components, Daniel working on Shakecast. So we really got a lot of help, but we also get a lot of help from our external collaborators. And um, a lot of this is through IPAs and through the external grants, but a number of people here are, are contributing to the models that we're using for the real time efforts. And you'll see their, their contributions as they go on. Um, and we're also, you know, I just have to acknowledge there's so many other people involved other than the, the photos here. Um, including the HasDev team and so many other uh, interns that we've had working on these problems. So it's really been a, a joint effort of a large number of people. Um, and we're lucky uh, to bring on, uh, as a postdoc, uh, Sabine Luce, who's actually defending her thesis this afternoon at Stanford. She'll be working on equity and risk, and, and, and we really look forward to bringing her on board as well. Uh, and you'll see what her contribution is uh, in some of the slides they follow as well. Um, and then I, I just so many summer interns we've had uh, and they've contributed and gone on to do great stuff. And, and a lot of the data sets, a lot of things we use have been um, really uh, massaged and approved with some of our intern help. Is just an example of this. I mean, this is the shake maps that are run around the world. Uh, you know, we just got a request from for help from a new one that's not even on here at Madrid uh, in, in Spain. Bruce Warden, I mean, he deals with all the software information and requests and updates from all these different groups, in addition to what's going on domestically with all the regional seismic network. You know, they have three systems running in California, Pacific Northwest, uh, Alaska, Utah, and others. Uh, and, and this is just part of what Bruce does. I mean, he, he's developing the software, developing the science behind it, uh, implementing it, responding, and, and also interacting with so many of the different users around the world. Uh, you know, so this is what it takes to, to do these things right. And, and so I'm very lucky to have such great support staff doing these things. So the, the information, earthquake information systems always coming up with new tools. I, I think we've got a lot of neat stuff there on the table, the ground failure, operational aftershock forecasting, um, and now the two pager, other things like that. I just wanted to update you on some things. Of course, we added early warning this last year or two, um, but I'll, emphasize one of the important things and that is some of these are highly dependent on downstream products so for instance pager depends on shake map which depends on magnitude and location so you got to start with the right magnitude and location otherwise you'll be constantly updating the losses uh, as we do um, but hopefully the, the initial magnitude and location will be good enough to to have a robust product did you feel that data goes in the shake map the shake map goes in the shake cast the finite fall goes back into the shake map and then that gets propagated forward to the ground failure and the pager results. So this inter interconnectedness is, is something that uh, is very important to know about and to understand because the, the cascading changes that will happen when something downstream or upstream changes. But I'm going to cover just a few of the different changes and updates to some of these systems and then move on to this, uh, the, the, the more interesting uh, updating in generation two pager. Uh, with ShakeMap, we've released this new Atlas, ShakeMap version 4. This is mainly Kristen Morano's effort and a number of different students that have helped. So now we have about 14,000 ShakeMaps for uh, the time period now going back to 1900. We had originally gone back to 73, and so there's a lot more ShakeMaps in here. Uh, this is great. If you can um, you can look at, well, this is a composite of the uh, of all the ShakeMaps. So this is the maximum intensity herb observed over 10 kilometer grids of the entire planet. So this is composed of 14,000 individual shake maps, but we're here we're preserving the maximum intensity. And Vince has worked on a script to, to make this um, just a nice little tool where you could go in and, and one, we, we want to go to higher resolution, which we're doing for like maps of California and, and, and smaller regions, but also to be able to collect in time and space a um, a series of shake maps, say for the Ridgecrest earthquake. So we've got a lot of requests where people want the strongest shaking over some time period. So Ridgecrest had a 6.4, 7.1, and a bunch of aftershocks. They want to know if you're doing loss modeling, what the strongest shaking was everywhere in that footprint over that time series of aftershocks. And so 
that can be done or you can do it for a time period um, over, in this case, uh, 120 years. Uh, and the nice thing is when you're selecting all these shake maps at a point, you can grab the maximum value, but you can also stack them and get the, the maximum number or the number of occurrences of shaking at each uh, intensity level. And so if we just do that for, say, Pasadena, we see the intensity that occurred a variety of times. I'm only going to go back to 1970 here. But, you know, you've got San Fernando, you've got uh, Sierra Madre, uh, presumably, uh, sorry, Whittier, Sierra Madre, Northridge. And you can start to see the number of um, observations at different intensity levels, which one can turn right into a, an observed uh, hazard map. So this is the rate of exceedance for given intensity levels. And um, this is kind of a nice handy output that you could produce from this composite shake map tool to see the hazard that actually occurred. Now, this is a minimum. There's obviously missed events at different thresholds. But as a minimum, you can see that, you know, you have intensity five every 10 years in Pasadena and uh, intensity three every every year or so. Um, so this gives you a nice sense of where, where things are uh, around the world if you, if you want to take a look at the collection of maps. Um, that atlas is, is just a vital ingredient into what we do for calibrating pager and calibrating uh, ground failure models. And, and one can take a look at these by just going online and picking a year or doing this interactively uh, through the map uh, search engine for CompCat. But um, going back so far, it gives us the opportunity to, to share and to put out maps like the um, San Francisco earthquake, which is a great shake map thanks to the original um, intensities from the Carnegie report, but also what Jack Boatwright's added um, uh, working with Howard Bundock later on. So this is a great shake map with the fault and, and, uh, and hundreds of intensity assignments. And you'll see how we use this for landslides in a minute. Um, so these historic events are all available if anyone wants to take a look at them. And with that composite tool, you can actually choose a region to, um, to stack these and see a you know, number of uh, occurrences at different intensity levels. The other advancement with ShakeMap um, is a byproduct of what Bruce Warden has worked on with this multivariate normal interpolation of ShakeMap, which it, it simultaneously uses the, the frequency conditioning as also the spatial conditioning. And what, it, what it lets us do is now, um, you know, traditionally we've only made three periods of spectral acceleration with ShakeMap plus PGA, PGV, and intensity. But now we can provide a full spectral plot at 22 periods. And we're going to do that. Um, not for every earthquake, but for earthquakes that have some significance and likely damage. And that's very important to engineers. Uh, after a significant earthquake, as I'll show you for the um, uh, Magna Utah earthquake, earthquake, um, there's a lot of requests to find out what the shaking is at specific locations, either, whether there's occurrences of liquefaction or landsliding, whether there's building damage there. So structural forensics depend on having a full spectral response at particular locations. And there's a new uh, building code um, uh, requirement that it's called a disproportionate damage trigger that if there was spectral acceleration shaking at 0.3 seconds at a certain level, I think it's 20% uh, G, uh, in a building that's damaged, then certain requirements come in in terms of retrofitting. And so engineers need to be able to query the shake map and get the ground motions for the full spectrum at particular locations. And so we've developed this shake map sampling tool that Mike Hearns developed in order to allow engineers or financial decision makers to get into a shake map grid and get the exact value of shaking at a particular location for the full spectrum. Um, and, and just what that looks like is basically um, if you want to know shaking at a particular building location, you can just run the script with that location and you can get back a spectral acceleration. Normally, we'd only be able to give you periods of three hertz, one hertz, and, and three seconds, but now we have full spectrum. And this uh, uncertainty line in here, the, the, the one sigma shaded gray zone is really important because it tells you uh, how well constrained that is. And, and without getting really into the details, if you're very close to a station, you have a very good representation of the observation. If you're very far from a station, the uncertainty may not even incorporate, uh, for the, this is just a smooth GMPE-based spectrum, it may not even incorporate what the observation is because the, there could be bias in the calculation of the GMPE. Uh, but when you put all that together, you can get the best estimate and uncertainty. And this, this approach um, is kind of fundamental for providing a full spectrum. 
again, this plot is, is extremely useful, but it would take a full seminar to go through. If you want to understand the uncertainty and how different native and, and um, observations of, of shaking are used in ShakeMap, uh, this is in, in Bruce's paper and it's, it's extremely informative. It's, it's key to do this because there's not only the engineering desire to understand what the shaking is at specific locations, but now there's a number of financial tools out there that rely on ShakeMap uh, for, for the decision making and for payouts. Jumpstart in California uses a 30 second contour of peak velocity from ShakeMap to pay out uh, insurance policies. There's a brand new one of the same type of flavor in, in New Zealand now for individual homeowners um, and uh, a number of other tools uh, de depend on pager and um, and uh, the results of the shake maps for paying out uh, financial losses. And uh, so one of the things we've done is in addition to this, this shake map sampling tool is we've just finished a paper that's in review that spells out the operations policies and pre procedures for shape map uh, in terms of how it's updated, where the metadata are and the paper trail for it, allow these kinds of decision makers to have kind of a go-to manual uh, FAQ for, for the questions that they typically ask us about how ShakeMap operates. Switching to Did You Feel It, um, this is fun. This is a, um, a composite now of the maximum shaking for the five million over 5 million reports that we've had for the last 20 years with, with uh, Did You Feel It? And so this, again, this is the highest shaking that occurred at each location based on the, the, the did you feel data alone. Um, if we zoom in a little bit further, you can see that, you know, we, we have pretty good coverage. Obviously, domestically, we get much more uh, response than we do globally. But uh, even uh, in, in any area around the world that has uh, considerable seismic activity, we're getting a good number of reports. And part of that is simply that, um, you know, those of us that uh, English is our native language, we don't tend to know this, but you can get it. Uh, any browser now tends to have a, a, a little configuration where you can simply take a, uh, an existing web page and switch it to your native language with a, just a touch of a button. And so this is the French and the uh, Hindi version of Did You Feel It? Um, by just simply changing the configurations in your browser. So that's facilitated a lot of use globally. Um, domestically, um, it's fun to take a look back at each year. You can see how things change from year to year. This is the, the ArcGIS server that we have for Did You Feel It? This is 2016. This is uh, all the uh, 20 years that I mentioned before for the United States. And when you start looking at these things and comparing them to, say, the National Seismic Hazard Map, you start to see that uh, over even a 20-year period, we're starting to really replicate uh, a lot of the features of the hazard map with some obviously serious gaps like in the Pacific Northwest, but even Salt Lake City now with the Magna Utah earthquake has filled in nicely uh, as, as the hazard map represents. Uh, it's beginning to converge over the even a 20 year period. One of the things that, um, that's really been neat to see with the Did You Feel data is some uses uh, on the right. Jim Golds has been doing a lot of social science analysis of Did You Feel data to see uh, how people behave and what kinds of um, the risk understanding they have. One of the things about the Ridgecrest earthquake that was pretty clear is that even in areas where people had uh, been exposed to duck cover and hold, there's very few people that did it on the, and then based on their responses to did you feel it? There's a lot of other questions you can ask with that data. And, and Jesse Saunders and, and Ryan Schultz are, are looking at similar problems where you're looking at the lower end of the uh, did you feel data to see where the best uh, you know, strategy for earthquake early warning alerting should be done as well as what kind of um, intensity of shaking represents a nuisance for induced earthquakes. So these data sets are, are, are pretty important for the, these types of analysis. Vince and I actually put out a 10-year uh, kind of review of the DigiField data. And just recently, we put out another kind of retrospective on the science and the lessons learned from DigiField. So those are available as a kind of um, a pointer to all the science beneath that's been done with the DigiField data. And, if, and I can point to those those papers if you'd like those. The, the thing that's always interesting about Did You Feel It is the responses come in really quickly. These are, um, it's the first hour, typically we get 80 to 90% of the responses. Uh, and you know, at night, sometimes there's a, a bimodal distribution, so there'll be the people that feel it, then later on when people wake up, there'll be another pulse. But in general, we get about 90% of the responses within the first hour. So it's extremely helpful in establishing the shaking distribution. And it's pretty robust. I mean, this red line is a prediction for a magnitude 
I think 4.7 earthquake. And the aggregated and average data it just fits that like the T, except where you have a few data points at the beginning and, and at the end. But um, they're pretty darn reliable. And Bruce uh, Warden had shown early on that once you get to um, about 20 responses, you really have a robust um, uh, observation. And resampling this over and over again, you could find that it doesn't change more than 0.2 units um, when you have 20 responses. And it's about 0.3 units of intensity and uncertainty when you have even a single response. But this is for the whole data set. And um, what Vince has done recently is to say, well, what about different thresholds? If we go to intensity one to three, three to five and a half, five and a half to 10, in fact, the uncertainty increases um, with higher intensity. So there is a heteroscedastic component to the DigiField data. And, and that makes sense because the observations at lower intensity are much more direct than at the higher intensity where you're looking at damage and effectively you need some engineering expertise. So we are adding that uncertainty as a function of intensity to shake map when we include the DigiField data. And on top of that, we're adding an additional uncertainty, which is related to the fact that we don't think that um, the average observer can make engineering assessments uh, that are that are really needed to get the highest intensities. Uh, so effectively, intensity seven, eight, and nine have some um, potential engineering observations that aren't made through the DigiField system. The data keep growing with higher losses and higher damage, so it, it's it, it definitely is consistent with what's going on, but what we're doing to use the higher intensities in ShakeMap is to add additional uncertainty for the intensities from DigiField above intensity six. And so that when we get to intensity nine, we're substantially downweighting the DigiField data. Um, if there's a lot of uh, intensities nine is reported, they'll certainly have a, an impact, but um, individual reports will have, have less impact than if they were assigned based on um, uh, reconnaissance trips from, from professionals. Um, the other thing that we've been doing, and, and the reason we're looking at the uncertainties at DigiField, is um, the EMSC, the EuroMed Seismic Center, uh, Remy Bousseau's um, system of felt reports, gets a lot of uh, intensity reports or felt reports around the world. Um, it's, it's a picture-based approach. Uh, and so it's not you know valid macroseismic intensities, but these do also correlate very well with the intensities, especially at the lower levels. You can imagine there's a limitation also at the high levels where, you know, what's the difference between intensity nine and 10? It's very difficult for somebody to say, but we there, um, but we, we really want to look at this data because they're very widely um, reported, especially in, in Europe. Uh, and it's part because people just have to pick a picture on their cell phone rather than filling out a, a digital field form. But when we look at the uncertainties, we um, we realize that just like did you feel it, the uncertainties actually are higher than for did you feel it at all levels, um, and the uncertainties grow certainly faster with higher intensities and at the highest intensities. Which, granted, there's not that much data, um, we we would have a very very large uncertainty and, and we'd probably downweight it substantially if we used it in shake map. But this is something we're evaluating because of the abundance of these data and their uh, kind of ubiquitous use uh, globally. One of the things that this points to um, is that, and we're, we're actually organizing a Powell Center workshop uh, on developing an international macroseismic scale, which is really bringing EMS-98, the European macroseismic scale to the United States and developing that very important um, building damage matrix that's used in EMS-98 to the missing building types that are not in the European scale that are in the US. and. Um, what this will allow us to do is to have a more rigorous MMI. MMI at the highest level is very difficult to assign even for engineers, but EMS-98 is, is much more quantitative. And we bring, hope to bring that to the United States with the original EMS-98 developers uh, participating. Um, and our, our intention is to work with ATC, Applied Technology Council, to make protocols so that when engineers are in the field, their observations can actually be used to assign uh, EMS-98-like intensities to the higher levels of shaking. So what we'll have then is a hybrid where we'll use DigiField data for anything below intensity seven and downweight that as, as it goes above that for shake map purposes and employ surveys that will be used for the higher intensities 
And once we have those two collections, we'll basically weight them appropriately so that the did you feel it and the uh, international map, uh, the higher level intensities will be weighted appropriately in shake map. So that's the kind of long-term vision of that. And if anyone's interested in this this um, this uh, planned workshop, it's it, it was delayed substantially due to COVID and other reasons, but we'll be bringing it back together. Um, when I go to these uh, the um, the event page, I like to go to the interactive map and trying to tie some of this together. This is the uh, uh, magnitude 5.7 Magna Utah earthquake. The interactive map here, I'm turning on the MMI contours and the shake map stations. I also like to drop in the population density to get a sense of where the shaking is with respect to the population. Uh, and then uh, at that point, I can also turn on the um, one kilometer grid of responses. And so this is the did you feel it data, obviously aligned very well with the population for um, this particular earthquake. What's really interesting, well, the spatial distribution is very consistent, both with the felt reports and the, and the storm motion data is as their, um, you know, their scatter, their, their variability. Um, but what's really fun with this is when you look at it in time, we see something that we've seen in other earthquakes and that's been reported worldwide, which is that there's a tendency for the outlying areas to report sooner than the inlying areas that are affected the most. And there was a power outage in the epicentral region. Uh, I don't know to what degree, but we see this um, very clearly when we look at, at these in detail. So this is five minutes after the earthquake, 10 minutes after the earthquake, 30 minutes after the earthquake, and then final map. And um, this is a, a, a kind of observation that Remy Bosu has, has noted globally where he called it the donut effect. But basically, areas that are shook the hardest are, are not going to respond um, to did you feel it and to EMS uh, observations. Uh, until later on, when they get a chance to do so, they have obviously other things, and and perhaps the power is out, and internet's out, and phones or services disrupted. So we're trying to figure out a way to take care of this. Um, and in the meantime, we got contacted by uh, some very interesting folks. This is uh, a picture that you probably see in your neighborhood a lot. There's these huge antennas on a house. Uh, these are ham radio operators, and we got contacted by. Oliver Dully, call signal K6 Ali, and he offered up uh, the amateur radio uh, emergency services to work on a approach to send did you feel it reports, even when the power's out or when com communications are down. So we worked with Ali to, to set up um, uh, Windlink did you feel it connection. So these are the amateur radio emergency services with uh, a connection to uh, uh, since they have power backup and they have remote communications, they can provide did you feel uh, data even when things are, are impossible elsewhere. Um, some of you may know Oliver because he's a significant partner to Tran Hanye from um, from SCEC, who you know, leads a lot of the projects at SCEC. So the small world uh, here, but uh, Oliver's been wonderful to work with, as have been all the, the ham radio operators. And what we set up with Vincent and Ollie's help and, and his team is uh, when they have a disaster, they, they involved, they're involved with emergency response to earthquakes, disasters all over the world. And they have forms to help hospitals and other people communicate. So they added the did you feel it in their drop down menu of forms. And when they fill out the did you feel it report, they have the choice to send this on the Internet if everything's fine, where they can actually send um, radio email. So this is low bandwidth, but it's completely independent of, of the existing infrastructure. And so it's, it's quite robust. And that's you know, the purpose of these, these ham radio operators as, uh, as emergency response um, you know, uh, contributors. So we've tested it out and we had an exercise and then we had a real event. There was this El Monte earthquake last year. Um, and these are, did you feel reports just from the, the, the local ham radio operators that are aware of this system? And, uh, and now they're reporting on a regular basis. So this has been really kind of fun. And we put together an EOS article about this. Um, and uh, it was kind of a fun article with uh, sending in the cows, which is cells on wheels. These guys have really thought through the, the post-disaster environment and how to communicate. And, and so they're a great work group to work with. And Ollie has really done a great job in, in getting that information out to the entire ham radio operators uh, around the globe. It's an amazing and, and very well distributed group of, of um, 
of uh, let's say geeks. <laughs> uh, and, and then Vince has made it so that we could bring in the email forms in addition to you know the, the, the web-based forms and with a mail reader, and we can parse these automatically into into did you feel it and, and know where they came from, so we can separate them out as we you know, show the the ham reader operators how that works. Um, the the other thing that's new now is the ground failure product. Um, so when you go to any event page that has a significant um, magnitude, magnitude six and larger, we will generate the uh, um, uh, landslide and liquefaction probabilities. Um, and if we bring those onto the map, you can see liquefaction probabilities with relationship to uh, the strong shaking in the flat zones. There's no landslide probabilities here because the, um, the shaking falls off so quickly as you get to the mountains. So the shaking was primarily in low-lying areas in Salt Lake City and, and therefore is a liquefaction event, but uh, not a landslide event. The landslide models I won't get into, but these are logistic regressions that depend on a number of global models. And one of the efforts now with, with uh, help from now probably Alex Grant and some of our new folks, Andrew Madureski and, and, uh, um, and Ben Mason, we're going to try to refine this to do this at a, at a higher resolution than these global models. But these models have been established, and if anyone wants to get a paper trail, Kate, Kate also has a good paper that summarizes how this works. Um, you know, for some earthquakes, it, it, the landslides are a nuisance, but for um, other earthquakes, they're, 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 they are the story. And for this Papua New Guinea earthquake, the landslide model here now is in the category of red and the liquefaction category of red, so very serious occurrences. And the reason why is you have very strong shaking um, overlapping with very steep slopes, and the outcome of that um, it, it can be quite devastating. And in fact, this uh, these these slides really impacted communications travel uh, to emer you know for emergency travel as well as um, operating a, a number of uh, petroleum uh, regions that that really affected the, the entire GDP of the country. So these things can be really important. And this new landslide ground failure product really highlights the events where this is going to be a very significant issue. I'll skip over this. We're not uh, out of the woods. I mean, in, in the U.S., we haven't seen this for a long time, but uh, these black dots represent landslides from the 1906 earthquake uh, in liquefaction and ground failure um, within the city and, and in the surroundings uh, were pretty darn extensive. And we can now use this older uh, collection of shake map atlases to estimate with our models what things would look like and how well we would recover these types of um, occurrences. And, and so this is, you know, something that, you know, we haven't thought about for a long time, but the liquefaction landslide associated with the 1906 earthquake compounds the shaking damage quite considerably, with especially with today's population. And we're working on some efforts to, you know, see how well we do against the observations. But this required not only these historical maps, but digitizing the um, occurrence of the uh, historical um, data from, from the older products that are produced after 1906. Um, again, around the world, we have lots of um, observations of uh, landslides and liquefaction for each earthquake. And now we're able to you know, highlight which events are going to uh, be noteworthy in terms of these, these secondary hazards uh, and for liquefaction. Where we're going with that is to try to make use of these, um, not only in terms of the exposure of assets to the probability of liquefaction and landsliding, but also how they would contribute to losses and to bring those into pager. These are both um, challenging problems. The first one um, from uh, work that Kate's been doing with with um, uh, with uh, colleagues, uh, Wilson all has a paper now that is showing the overlap of the Kaikoura roadway uh, in New Zealand with the probability of landsliding. And this is where you immediately find out that there's going to be some serious problems along roadways. And these, in fact, were closed uh, for, for many months following the earthquake. So we're looking at ways to, and to aggregate the hazard as a function of um, critical facilities, both through roadways, which will be affected and will challenge transportation after an event, but also with lifeline utilities and, and critical utilities that, that could be done through the ShakeCast system. The harder challenge is to try to turn these occurrences of landslides into um, estimates of losses in terms of fatalities. Um, it's challenging for a couple of reasons. One is we don't have as many landslide fatalities that are that are actually 
characterized. Fatalities from earthquakes and shaking is, is quite commonplace, but separating out those fatalities due to landslides are fewer and far between. And, you know, these landslide probability models aren't telling us the runout length, the dimensions of, you know, the area of uh, depth of these slides. And so, you know, we're lacking a physical model to connect uh, the occurrence of, of fatalities uh, and damaged structures to the probabilities. And that's, that's going to be ongoing work in progress. Let's see, with Pager, um, just a quick update to Pager, and that is that um, we're now generating, for domestic earthquakes that are significant, this two-Pager product, which we hand the uh, Pager results and the shake map to FEMA, and FEMA's, FEMA runs HAZUS, and we can get out of that a more spatially rich estimate of the losses, including the number of buildings that would be in each tagging category. So with Pager, our, our model is very, very generalized, and we aggregate. With HAZIS, domestically, we can separate out and give losses on a county level. And so these are now um, injuries by county and shelter needs and, and direct economic losses by county, which is needed for disaster declarations. And so Pager will come out within 10 to 20 minutes of an earthquake, and the two Pager will come in a few hours later as FEMA runs HAZIS, and, and we aggregate this and, re and redistribute it. So this is great because it, it gives you a little bit more detail about what's going on for, in this case, the Ridgecrest sequence. Um, but also, um, you know, if you do this for a scenario, you can just see the distribution of losses and where the, the main counties that will be affected are and, and, and what the overall losses are. Um, let's see, I'm running out of time. I'm going to skip the scenario part here and um, go on to the, the last portion of things. Um, if you want to hear about the scenario uh, efforts, there's some really fun stuff that we're working on, uh, but uh, I'll leave that for an, another date. So this is a nice cartoon that uh, my friend Dave Lalamont at, at NTU Singapore put together. And the purpose of the cartoon is to, is to emphasize that over time, you can get more um, accurate and, and less uncertain predictions of, of um, losses by updating and using different observations to um, basically improve your prior model with evidence. So prior model of losses or landsliding, some evidence, um, what happens with time is you get a narrower and narrower, um, a more certain estimate of the losses. And at some point you should be approaching your ground truth with a very low uncertainty. And this is exactly what we're gonna be doing. Uh, and so the evidence is gonna be either fatalities or, or satellite imagery. We'll have a model like pager or landsliding, we'll update that model. That'll be our new prior model. As new evidence comes in, we're going to update that. And so the, the idea here is to have convergence over time with a pure model to uh, solid observations. And so uh, there won't be a, a step function between the observation or the, the model and the losses over time. Um, and uh, the strategy behind that is, is, is to recognize that, you know, in, in general, what we've been doing with these models is to have a one-way path so that the magnitude location, the pager goes to the shake map, the shake map goes to the pager. Um, and these things, the pager results don't get updated except for when shake map changes. And shake map can change because the finite fall changes. It can change because there's more did you feel it data. So there's, there is a built-in updating to the shake map, but not an updating to the, the pager results. Um, and the new paradigm, if you will, will be to use reporting of casualties and imagery separately, two different approaches to update pager losses, but also to update ground failure estimates and the finite fault model. Now, the, the update of the finite fault model based on imagery is something we've always been doing. Um, you know, the geodetic data uh, or um, the in imagery in terms of optical uh, offsets and, and INSAR data has been used well, for a long time to develop a better finite fault model, which goes back into shake map. But now we're talking about using imagery to update the ground failure, uh, landslide and liquefaction model, as well as pager losses directly. Let's start with this, um, this approach here. When we have reported casualties, can we update the pager losses? And the, the notion here, and this is published uh, recently, um, a paper by Know-it-all, um, we, we've seen past, and, and you know this intuitively, that the initial loss estimates or initial observations of fatalities for earthquakes 
are very low. They're going to come in quickly, but they'll be on the on the very low end of the spectrum of what happened. And those growth curves tend to be fairly predictable um, in, in aggregate, but for individual earthquakes, it's, it's really challenging. But if you start sampling a number of these points, you start to see where things are going. And we can quantify that and use that as an independent observation on top of the model that we have as the prior for losses. And the way this works is a little complicated, but we'll, we'll, we'll take, tackle this. You know, initially, Page will provide some fatality estimates, um, and that'll be just based on the model. If we then, in the case of, in this case, the Gorka earthquake, uh, magnitude 7.8 in uh, 2015, if after seven hours we've got 500 reported fatalities, that's independent data that, that could be used to, to help uh, update the, the pager losses. And we do that by updating the losses um, at the particular, knowing that this is only seven hours after the earthquake. We can then predict what the ultimate losses will be at time infinity. Uh, and the fatalities, you know, ultimately will be. If we get more losses, uh, we can then take the output of that initial update as the prior model and update that based on uh, a later time and a number of reported fatalities and provide at the uh, ultimate um, end of the, um, the search and rescue what the fatalities will be and so on. And so this updating um, it, it can be very effective, especially if you think about an event where you have maybe 10x uh, estimated losses and none are reported, or if you have zero reported losses and there are already some fatalities, you know that's going to modify your your uh, your prior model towards towards the observations. And we can prove that with some numerical examples by taking the Gorka earthquake and starting with um, estimates of fatalities that are 100 times too low or 100 times too high or right on target. And these will not only converge with time, but the uncertainty will go down as you add more and more observations. So this is, you know, kind of a theoretical approach. But um, when we do this in in, a, in in actual application, for a recent earthquake in Greece uh, offshore, um, there were a total of 116 reported fatalities for this earthquake. Most of them were actually in Izmir, quite distant from the um, from the epicenter. So that was a bit of a surprise. There was some uh, some amplification, but also some very weak structures that came down, and with the page results, the initial results, and this is the work uh, Davis Engler has done uh, in our shop. The, what I'm showing here is the pager alert um, histogram on its side. And so the initial pager alert was showing uh, you know, a range of fatalities. At about two hours or three hours, we get a fatality estimates or reported fatalities four. Later on, we get estimates of 14. And what happens with these observations as they're increasing the pager model actually increases um, its losses, but it also reduces the uncertainty with time. And so at the very end, you end up converging to uh, not only the, the right total losses, but um, you have less uncertainty in the process. And we've done this offline and sent these results uh, around to uh, OFTA, uh, USAID and, and USGS, and, and we're trying to look at this operationally. Uh, with other earthquakes, it may be the opposite, where um, in this case, with 10 fatalities estimated reported, but we estimated a higher number to start with. And with this kind of convergence, again, we get to the right answer and we do that with a lower uncertainty um, as these reports come in in time. Operationally, this will be a challenge because um, we need to have our analysts and others be aware of what's happening out there in terms of um, actual reports, in terms of curating what comes in from the news wires, from the uh, ministries of different uh, countries, as well as some of the other reporting agencies, and then to um, put those into a database that Pager will see and, and, and automatically update. So this requires um, some challenges. The other thing is we we're, we don't expect to get economic losses very quickly. Uh, that's not going to be something that we can update. But can we scale the economic losses proportional to the scaling of the fatality ratios? And we'll have to see if that works. So the last part of this talk is is about the I think is the kind of the uh, most interesting stuff that we're working on right now. And that is, um, we've been collaborating with the NASA Disasters Program, uh, primarily through Segho Yun uh, and, and the Damage Proxy Maps. So right now, Pager uh, is used by, by JPL um, to trigger uh, recovery of uh, imagery from, from uh, the satellites that are available. 
And so when there's a significant earthquake, they automatically start generating interferograms and damage proxy maps. Um, and the, the, the goal of this project is to start using those for, for a number of different uses. One of them is for the pager updating, as I'll show you. But these are two different beasts, the, the um, interferogram and the damage proxy map. The interferogram, you know probably very well that um, this could be used for looking at uh, tectonic changes, um, primarily fault offset and, and, and large scale deformation that can then be used in this case by uh, Dara Goldberg and, and, and colleagues to infer the complex rupture of the Ridgecrest earthquake. And so on a, on a macro scale, this is extremely useful, this, this satellite uh, radar imagery for looking at uh, you know, crustal deformation. The, and, and these are basically you know, line length changes or changes of, of uh, distance to the satellite that can be translated to changes of displacement on the ground. The damage proxy map is, is, is a different beast. It's the decorrelation of the um, signal before and after an earthquake. So changes in reflectivity that can be caused by anything, uh, noise or, or very uh, large signals. And, and so volcano, volcanoes, um, building damage or, or um, burnt areas that show up in fires, um, damaged buildings from hurricanes, and also um, fault offset or uh, damage uh, buildings, landslides, and liquefaction from earthquakes. And, and this is, has always intrigued me because these are fairly high-resolution um, damage proxy maps. The, the, the one case that really is obvious is Amatrice, Italy, where there was a number of collapsed buildings in a very in a very small area that were very well resolved with the change in, in, in um, reflectivity of, this, of the DPM. And so I was always wondering how we could incorporate these DPM models, which have very high resolution, 30 meters and down to five meters, but they don't really know what these changes are. When there's only buildings there, um, this was an obvious case. There was a very severe damage and very little change around from and a very, very low, low noise data set. But in general, things are much more complicated. So how can we use this in our models? Um, initial pass of this was done by uh, Sabine uh, Luce, who's going to be joining us, as I mentioned, um, as a postdoc. And working with her colleagues, um, they basically took the damage proxy map uh, and the shake map for the Gorka earthquake. And they built a, a priori model of uh, building losses and with a subsample of the uh, of the losses that they had from field surveys and the DPM, they tried to update the the building loss model so that that could be used effectively in long term um, planning and recovery. The PDA is a, a preliminary damage assessment, and so this is not a response time frame, but more of a recovery time frame. But they found that that Bayesian updating based on the field surveys was extremely valuable. But the DPM didn't add that much to the story, in part because the DPM uh, included other things like landsliding, liquefaction, uh, and it was particularly noisy for this, this earthquake. So the question is, how can we pull out all of those different signals and not just the building losses? By the way, this one uh, best student, best graduate student paper um, this, this past year. Um, okay, so let, the example we'll use is the Puerto Rico earthquake uh, of 2020. In this case, the ground fear failure product showed um, yellow alerts, so limited population exposure. Um, the, the liquefaction probability was higher than the landslide probability, and that turned out to be true. Uh, and so this is not a major landslide liquefaction event, but, but there was significant uh, occurrences. The liquefaction model, this prior model that we use, is um, is shown here, and so large areas of, of low probability of liquefaction. Here's the shake map contouring and the epicenter offshore. The landslide probability is shown here, and, and you can see that the landslide probability is over a large area, but low probability. And you know, again, these are complementary. The oops, the liquefaction and landslides tend to not occur in the same place because one occurs in low slope and the other occurs in high slope, and we'll take advantage of that fact. But um, if we look at the imagery for this Puerto Rico earthquake, this is the um, raw DPM in grayscale. And we're gonna zoom in on the area that I just showed you that was affected. You know, this is it. This is the damage proxy map. This is the raw changes before and after the earthquake. 
And the question is, you know, what, what caused these changes? Can you look at this and start to interpret what's going on? I mean, what, what's landslides, what's liquefaction, what's building damage? Was it road work before and after the earthquake? You know, the empty parking lot that was full before and after. There's lots of noise, vegetation growth. And, and what's worse is, you know, these things can be convergent. I mean, you can have landslides that cause building damage, liquefaction that causes building damage, and, you know, vegetation growth, you know, around buildings that were damaged. So this is a very challenging problem. Uh, the problem is not an unfamiliar one to a lot of us. It's, it's you know, basically a collection of uh, multivariate distributions of random variables that are overlapping. And, um, you know, this, this is a, a very suitable uh, problem for machine learning. And, uh, and typically, uh, this is basically a Gaussian mixture model. You, you tend to do this with um, machine learning, and it, it's, which is very good at separating out these different distributions and with an input like the, um, the damage proxy map and constraints by training the system with some observations of landslides and liquefaction and building damage, you can get a, a pretty good system going for predicting what would happen, you know, which parts of the damage proxy map are, are due to which sources. But it's sort of a black box when you do it that way. We've come up with a, a different solution that, that I think is much more physically meaningful, and it's called the causal graph. The causal graph is really a, a, a quite complicated strategy, but it's basically a physics-informed inference between our models and the observations. And I'll just spend a couple of minutes to go through this. Basically, you have um, unobserved landslides, uh, unobserved liquefaction, and we will wait. We'll call these X1, X2, and the building damage X3. So we don't know what's what's occurred there, but we have a prior model landsliding, a prior model liquefaction, and this causal graph tells us basically the relationship between landslides and the observations that we are using the damage proxy map. Was uh, landslides can contribute to the damage proxy map? Sorry, liquefaction. Landslides can contribute to the liquefaction map. Building damages. Can can and landslides can contribute to building damage and liquefaction contribute to building damage. So this causality connects the physical processes through the through the prior model to some observations, unlike the, the kind of black box uh, machine learning approach that, that that I mentioned earlier. The the nice thing here is we can have um, you know we can spell out the details here that, that we can introduce noise that's due to landslides, noise that's due just part of the damage proxy map uh, and, and liquefaction, as well as um, basically we can have bias terms. So if the liquefaction prior model and the landslide prior model are, are um, off, we can correct for that. Um, and we can also uh, notice that uh, in places where there's liquefaction, there's not going to be landsliding and vice versa. So we can we can turn this into a, into a, uh, a fairly challenging calculation. Um, but the, the thing to import to note is that the um, initial models, the input prior models themselves are logistic regressions. So the, um, these particular uh, distributions are, um, are, are binary and they're, uh, we use Bernoulli distributions to try to characterize those. But we have to account for basically binary observations, which are either you have a landslide or, or not a landslide in each location due to the nature of the, of the um, logistic regression that we used. Uh, I, this is a, a challenging thing to go through in just a couple of minutes, so I will point you to um, a paper by Susu, uh, and, and by all means bring her in for a seminar to, to go through this in detail, because I think it's a really fun machine learning strategy here. But basically, you set up the causal graph, and you're trying to solve the unknown relationship between the random variables and these causation, the, the landslide liquefaction and building damage to determine what they are. Um, and we use variational inference, which is um, a machine learning strategy that's not dissimilar to like a Monte Carlo uh, Markov chain strategy, but it's it's much more suitable for um, really challenging scale problems like this one, where you have five meter resolution DPMs over a large region and lots of free variables. So um, uh, Susu has figured a way to to do that with uh, pruning and, and only sampling parts of the problem and then iterating on that and converging to the solution. We've tried this for a number of events now and it's working quite well and we, we've got a paper process that's that's going to explain this. But let me just take you through the last part of this 
just a couple slides to show you how this works. This is the prior landslide model. So areas of dark red are higher landslide probability. They're all low probabilities because this isn't a very significant event in terms of landslides. Um, but there's a very large area, and we don't know exactly where, where um, you know, there's low probability over a large area. When we do the updating, um, we get areas of higher probability um, over, over smaller regions that do end up corresponding with, with the landslides, which are these blue triangles. Again, these landslides are fairly small, rock slides and other things. Some of them did cause problems, but it, it, this wasn't a landslide event. It really was a liquefaction event in a lot of ways. And this is the prior liquefaction model with the blue having a probability of a very large area. But when you add um, this updating, what you do is knock off areas that were low probability that didn't have any signal change in the DPM and focus it on areas that did. Uh, and, and that then aligns very nicely with the actual liquefaction uh, observations. What's, what's even more remarkable is that we can actually pull out where building damage occurred. And this, there's no prior building damage model at this point. We're going to have a prior model, uh, but we haven't got to that. Even so, these are the areas that have probabilities of building damage. And the actual building damage uh, in, from the ground truth information is, is shown on top of that. So we're able to really trap you know, it, it focus on areas that have significant um, uh, damage uh, with this, this approach. And um, the, the interesting part about this is that we can go back to the model and, and show graphically with, with larger arrows um, that this is a liquefaction event and not a landslide event. When we look at the Hokkaido earthquake, which was really all the losses were from, were primarily from landslides, things switch around and we get a causation that, that goes from landslide to building damage and, and, and to the signals that we see in the in the um, damage proxy map, as well as a, a direct arrow into the from the landslide to the damage proxy. Um, but the the last thing that, that that kind of excites me about this is that we we've got some good things to do still. We don't have a prior building model. So that will kind of come into play and allow us to better um, have a prior uh, for for building damage. And we can also use a new data set for the globe that's building footprints, which are now quite accurate and will tell us exactly where building damage could occur. And that, that's going to be an enormous help in, in narrowing things down. And this same causal graph allows us to bring in observations. We haven't done that yet, but if you have observed landslides, observed building damage, or observed liquefaction, those observations can be used directly to train the model and so the, the updating process can be much better informed by ground truth observations than by, by just the damage proxy map itself. So that's, that's where it's going. There's, there's a lot of uh, challenges with, with implementing this. Um, the prior building damage model is still kind of in the um, early stages, and we'll be working with OpenQuake and, 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 and the pager outputs for, for prior building damage models to, to do that. Um, and I should be clear that the timeline for this kind of updating is is not the same as the initial pager output. These INSAR images can, you know, we can't count on those. They come effectively opportunistically. Typically, five to ten hours will be the first maps, first damage proxy maps. Um, and so we're looking at somewhere between a response and recovery time frame. Um, but over time, these satellites are getting denser and 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 more available uh, and more targeted. So that should improve with time. And the DPMs themselves are improving in terms of the number of scenes that are used before and after to, to understand what's actual changes in the DPMs will give us a better quantification of the uncertainties of each cell and that we can incorporate uh, as well into this, uh, this causal graph. And, and then there's lots of steps that we need to worry about in terms of um, operationalizing this. Uh, so, you know, I think this kind of cartoon is actually realizable. Um, there's a lot of components where you know the initial model is really useful, uh, but if the ground truth information can be accommodated and, and incorporated into the initial model uh, over time, I think the model would become more more valuable than just throwing it out after the ground truth information uh, comes in. And all this stuff is um, documented in a series of papers. I'll leave this slide, you know, in the in the presentation so people can track it down. Um, and, and, but by all means, get in touch with me, and I, I've also listed them here um, just for, for reference. So thank you. I'll leave it at that.
Thanks, David. That was a great talk. Now, if anyone has any questions uh, and want to ask David, you can raise your hand or you can type it into chat and I'll read it out. And I did think there was already a few questions in chat. One from Keith about the two pagers, uh, if they're available to people with the USGS and to the public. Uh, uh, yeah, that's thanks. Thanks, Keith. Um, yeah, the two pagers are uh, we do directly with FEMA in the house and the last few events that warranted that, um, Alaska, Puerto Rico, and Magna, Utah, we, we did distribute within the USGS and, and, and with FEMA and also to USAID with the domestic earthquakes. That didn't matter. Uh, but we haven't put those online. We've got a strategy for kind of replacing the one-pager with a two-pager when it's available on the web page. Uh, but we have to get dedicated time uh, that has to have to, to implement that on the on the on the web pages to, to to achieve that. But I think we've achieved a level of confidence that that we will be putting those out uh, publicly um, regularly, regularly meaning very infrequently because it, it warrants damage, a damaging earthquake domestically. And one of the things I didn't get to is that the two pager internationally will be kind of a nice goal as well. But domestically, we count on hazards having a more detailed loss model than pager. Internationally, we need to do better than Pager with uh, working with the OpenQuake, uh, the GEM folks, and with the more advanced Pager models that Kishore uh, and, and Davis have been working on. All right, and I can see that Walter has his hand raised and is ready to ask a question. Great presentation, uh, Dave. We really learned a lot and a lot of different products. It's impressive. Um, there are so many topics that I'll just choose one to focus on. Um, how uncertain is it to go from uh, ground motion to liquefaction or landslide probability? Yeah, well, you know, as with all these products, there's, as Ned would say, you know, all models are wrong. They're, they're, they can still be very useful. And, you know, in, in the aggregate, you got to look at, you know, at first, is this a liquefaction event? Is this a landslide event? And if you know, and if not, you've you've already learned something. If so, you know where is it most likely to be? You know, and you know that to us is intuitive, right? It's going to be in the ports. It's going to be in the flat lying areas. You know, areas that are um, typically uh, of concern for infrastructure and things like that. But here we're quantifying it. Now the quantification is very general. It's done on a regional, you know, on a on a global scale. To do it on a regional scale, you know, the reason we can do it globally is that we have proxies for all the input variables, and we have lots of data to train those proxies against, um, lots of shake maps and lots of occurrences. But if you go to some part of California and say, I want to do better because, you know, I know what the geotechnical, you know, information is there, one, you have to have that spatially. You can't just have it, look, you know, single locations. Um, you have to have the water table. You have to have, you know, the, the uh, susceptibility and all that. But then how do you calibrate it? You've, you've never had an earthquake there where you have the information or you have some just a very few data points to calibrate. So then you bring in a physical model and the physical model, you know, can take in the detailed um, susceptibility and all the detailed information. But it's limited by the physical model itself. The observations and the constraints are limited. And we, we simply don't have great ways to calculate liquefaction landslide probabilities with end-to-end -end physical model. So the empirical approach, you know, has its limitations, but it's at least calibratable. And uh, and the physical models um, will ultimately lead to better solutions at finer scales. But the caveats we throw in are, are you know, are grand. Um, so that's one of the holy grails here is to use the better information and hopefully, you know, develop some hybrid where we can use the best of both these worlds to, to make more useful models. They'll never, you know, site-specific losses without having in-situ monitoring and in-situ measurements of all the parameters that you need uh, is the only way to go. And that's just not going to happen at the scale needed for making decisions after an earthquake. Okay, thank you. Uh, great topic, a great lecture, and really fascinating issues that you've brought up and contributions. Thanks, Congratulations. Walter. I think there's one more question in chat uh, from Michael. 
are there some additional products or product improvements that you think are promising, but currently we don't have the, any capacity to tackle? Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, uh, that, that's, that's a great <laughs> door opener. Um, there's a, there's a few that are maybe more tractable, you know, that, that, um, that I think resources would help. One of them is, is simply building inventories. Keisha and I were talking about this yesterday. There's these great new data sets like, um, like the building footprints, but we don't know what the buildings are. And for us to do better um, in terms of loss modeling, we need to know what they are structurally, how much they cost, who's in them. And I, I really like the notion of these kind of machine learning tools where we can take uh, census data, we can take you know maybe Zillow data, all sorts of different types of data sets and train uh, uh, algorithms to assign, you know, what these structures are. You know, if they're, if they look like track homes, they're probably track homes. If they're, you know, in an urban area that's commercial versus residential, you know, we can attribute these different types of features. And so I'm, I'm kind of bullish on that kind of thing. Um, and uh, I guess I'll leave it at that because I'd have to think through all the other possibilities that, you know, I introduced today. Um, good, good stuff. There was an insurance question too. Um, who, who do do? Sorry, I missed that. Okay, any any other questions? Um, I don't see any other hand raised hands raised or in the chat. So I think uh, we'll end the recording there. And I'd like to thank everyone and David for giving a great talk, and thank everyone for coming to the seminar. And I encourage people that are here, if they have more questions for David, to stick around and ask him afterward in a more informal environment. Uh, so thank you, everyone. And thank you, David.